Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Malanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. That's Lament by The Cure, a deep cut on the UK goth rock band's 1983 album Japanese Whispers. An EP culled from that LP was The Cure's first album to chart in America. This song is just one of the many dark, foreboding tracks The Cure were recording in this period. In the song, Cure singer and songwriter Robert Smith sings mournfully about a tragedy he witnessed underneath a bridge. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to catch up with listeners, and enjoy some Hit Parade trivia. This month, I'm thrilled and honored to welcome a guest who's not only a longtime friend, but an estimable writer and critic. I first encountered Ned Raggett when he was a freelancer on All Music, where he has written literally hundreds of reviews, including much of the UK post-punk I cover in the latest full-length Hit Parade episode. Ned writes for numerous places, including The Quietus, Bandcamp, and KQED Arts. Ned, welcome to The Bridge. All right. Hey, great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Um, You know, we had a funny conversation. I can't remember if it was September or October when you were saying, hey, is anybody going to do something about the fact that 30 years ago, right about now, all of these UK post-punk and goth rock acts were scoring hits on the charts? Maybe somebody should do something about that. (laughs) And I pinged you privately and I said, shh, psst. Don't tell anybody (laughs) I'm totally doing something with that. Um, So where do I begin? Where did your fandom for this music come from? Well, that's an interesting question because even though I have, I claim no great authority, but even though uh, I still have people to this day, for instance, have told me that, oh, wow, your all music review of the Joy Division albums got me into the band. And I'm like, oh, thank you, (laughs) is that I was hardly an early fan of, of them or New Order or any of the other bands really discussed. And it really wasn't until 88, 89 that it fully sunk in with me. And I had only encountered them beforehand because they started scoring pop hits. Uh, the Cure is just like heaven. Good example. First time I ever heard them on the radio was that song when it got some airplay. Love and Rockets, No New Tale to Tell. TV airplay, top 40 airplay. 
and was backtracking from there in 89, especially the first part of 89, and this was after I'd gone to uh, college at UCLA, that I really started to get a sense of, oh, okay, there's some history here, and here are some bands that I missed. I was too young or just too unaware at the time, and I started backtracking from there. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on this episode, besides the fact that I knew that you have fandom and now quite deep knowledge about these bands, is that your journey was very similar to mine. And in the episode, as you heard, the full-length episode that I just put out, I really tried to take listeners, including British listeners who have who've tweeted at me and commented on the show about the journey that American listeners went on with these bands. Because, mm-hmm. yes, they had to break on the British charts, you know, back in the late 70s slash early 80s. But it really took the entirety of a decade for these bands to become hit makers in America. Oh, yeah. I mean, here's a good example in terms of, let's say, pop culture at work and where some of these bands already had cachet. In the uh, show, The Young Ones, the famed early 80s British comedy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I hear that laugh. We, we all have memories that we were of that age. I'm picturing Vivian and Neil and Mike right now. Uh, the the show, which ended up rebroadcast over here on, of course, MTV uh, later in the 80s, um, there's a joke at one point that one of the characters makes in one of the episodes when they're under the weather and says, oh, I hope so-and-so comes back with the cure. And the response from the other character is, oh, no, the cure is going to be next week. It's, you know, it's man. I think it was madness that week. I hope Mike hurries back with the cure. Now, no, no, it's madness this week. So the idea that in a admittedly, you know, more culty, but still BBC comedy show, you could just throw out a casual reference to the cure in this episode was from 84 and have it be generally understood, at least by the younger audience that was watching. That right there is kind of a sign about the Mm -hmm. cachet that certain bands already had in in play. Right. Whereas you could have mentioned the cure on a television program in 1984 in America and it would have just prompted shrugs. I mean, it would it wouldn't have happened. Bottom line. So, of course, one thing I struggled with that you heard openly in the first, like, 10 minutes of the episode was what to call this music, because there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, Supreme Court on pornography. I know it when I see it that, you know, uh, and no pun on the word pornography right now, because of that, of course, is a cure album. Um, but, you know, I know that these bands all go together. Admittedly, some of our British friends who were commenting the episode, mostly saying very nice things, said, you know, I consider New Order to be way more dancey than The Cure. And I'm not sure I consider The Smiths to be of a piece with Depeche Mode, because you're literally talking about one band, Depeche Mode, that plays virtually all synthesizers and one band that literally eschewed synthesizers, avoided synthesizers. So yet, I think, especially to American ears, these bands all go together. What would you call them? And did you feel at the time that they were all of a piece with each other? I don't know if I knew of the terms at the time. And in terms what I would call them now, you can't call them goth. It's just too, it's limiting. It's, um, too broad a term, I suppose. I mean, I don't know, or maybe too limiting a term, <laughs> ironically. It's one of those things that uh, it's sort of because there's an emphasis on melancholia. Mm-hmm. 
or a, you know, you sort of people look at it through those lens. But again, musically, there's very little connection. There's very little connection in terms of where they're from in the country. Mm-hmm. Manchester is not the suburbs of London, right. which is where uh, which is where the Cure comes right. from, and uh, and uh, similarly Northampton, which is where Bauhaus comes from, completely different in turn. Mm-hmm. So you've got this reductive effect, um, and the, it's not that far removed, really, from you could say the original British invasion or the second British invasion of the early 80s, where all these bands from all these different areas get lumped together. Right. They just happen to be successful at the same time. Right. But there was never an easy catch-all term for them all, and it's it's hard to say. It's more a generational marking point that people will come up with the terms as they do. I know you and I have exchanged terms like the Holy Trinity or the Holy Quartet because of the certain key bands that seem to be, you know, the above all else. But it's really hard to get a beat on in many different ways. Yeah. I like your analogy of the first British invasion in the 60s. Literally, if you boil it down to the two main bands, the Beatles and the Stones, Beatles are a provincial band from Liverpool. The Stones are basically centered around London. Like they Mm -hmm. don't have much in common except the moment when they came up. So yeah, that's Mm -hmm. a really great point where it's generational more than it is, you know, strictly musical, even though there's clear sonic hallmarks across these bands. So that's a terrific analogy. Um, so (laughs) the killer of this episode for me was knowing what to include and what to leave out. And so I guess what were the roads not taken in this episode? Did, could I have included more Susie and the Banshees? I frankly felt like I could have given them a little more play. Uh, did we have too much Morrissey? We should probably talk about (laughs) where Morrissey has been in the last 25 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. Some people are canceling Morrissey. So what did you feel were the holes or the gaps in this story? Well, I mean, you know, part of it certainly can be retrospective, but to, to give some people their credit, uh, you and I have uh, personal friends who pretty much, uh, when Morrissey started making statements, uh, particularly in the late 80s, musically and otherwise, was like, ah, that's it, I'm out. So, uh, you know, there were people who were already pulling the ripcord. And uh, famously, the first time I ever heard of the band Corner Shop, great band, was when uh, they appeared in the uh, music press in 1992, burning a Morrissey poster in front of EMI's headquarters, I think it was, or something like that. Like that because of a wow. couple of his then recent solo songs that they took understandable exception to. So, you know, you could say mm-hmm. he's always been canceled by some, but it's sort of reached a tipping point. You kind of have to include the band because of the, the marker they laid down. I mean, I think for a lot of people, the preferred member of the band at this point is easily Johnny Marr. Easily. He has uh, sort of come into his own in recent years. Uh, he has been touring and performing Smith songs along with uh, his own solo tracks. And it turns out he has a wonderful singing voice. As a lot of people said, it's a great way to enjoy the old Smith songs and not have to think about the guy who originally sang them. <laughs> so I thought that's one way to look at it. So, but you can't leave you can't leave him out. So, and the impact was so huge, you almost have to kind of acknowledge it. As for Susie. Yes and no, because the great thing about Susie is that, uh, and this is something I told her after I interviewed her once when her solo album came out, uh, we wrapped up the interview and I said, uh, thanks for the interview, really great, and by the way, I just wanted to let you know, I wanted to make sure I did this entire interview without once mentioning the word goth, and her response was this deep, thank you, <laughs> you know, she's she's kind of sick of the association, I think, all this time. That's amazing. I, you know, you make a very good point that in a way it's almost the audience that applies a term like goth uh, and, and it, you know, either in the moment or even retroactively. And, and, you know, 
the stories are legion about bands that don't want to be tagged with the exact thing they're tagged with, whether it's, you know, grunge or emo in the, the 2000s. The minute somebody comes up with a catch-all term, the artists are trying to scurry away from it almost immediately. Right. I'm not at all surprised that Susie does not want to be overly associated with goth per se, uh, even though like bands like The Cure, like Bauhaus at the time, she embodied that aesthetic mm-hmm. uh, to whatever extent. It's the people who draw on them and created the subculture after it that sort of creates the subculture. They were just sort of like, you know, Susie essentially is a fantastic art pop slash art rock performer. That's what she is. Um, and then things get applied to the past. Right. Here we are in the late 2010s, the very end of the 2010s. The Cure are still touring off and on. Um, Morrissey is still out there being his obnoxious mm. self. Um, what's what's the legacy of these bands? And as long as I've got you speculating a little bit, uh, do you think this is the year Depeche Mode gets into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame since they're on the ballot again? I would love it to. I certainly voted for them. I think it's inevitable. I think that uh, we're we're within uh, at least just you know no more than another couple of years that there's finally a tipping point. I think. It's just generational change. I think enough people are going in there going, look, come on. And they're, they've just been too big a band. And in terms of, yeah, where it goes from there, I mean, both the Passion and the Cure, who have long had a very much strong mutual appreciation society going, mm-hmm. pretty much almost from the get-go, I think it's telling that those two are, you could say, the great survivors, the ones who could play the big venues, have the special events and tours, things like that, um, very notably. And uh, even though New Order is sort of, you know, permanently fractured now that Peter Hook looks like he's you know, never, ever going to come back, you know, they maintain their own audience as well. It's one of those things that as time has gone on, younger generations, I think very understandably, find their own locus points. A really good example can be the fact that, speaking of reunions, the My Chemical Romance reunion was announced, and you had a whole generation of people younger than us just losing their minds <laughs> over that one. They were thrilled. What's the worst thing? Right. And it's you. All you have to do is like look, especially at uh, you know uh, uh, mid two thousands MCR uh, when Jarway still had the hair uh, fully fully teased up. It's like uh, yeah, Robert Smith, come on. Yeah. And and he'll cop to it. I mean, you know, he's uh, he owns up to uh, you know his uh, his influences. Um, so um, yeah, no. I, as I said at the end of the episode, I really think you can you can see the legacy both visually and mm-hmm. melodically, musically, mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of these bands. And uh, like you, I'm certainly hoping that uh, this is Depeche Mode's year. I'll be voting for them. You know, I was pleasantly surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been that the Cure got in on this. I believe mm-hmm. it was their second time on the ballot this year, and just so delighted that they got in so you know maybe uh our generation is reaching a point where you know we have the uh the legacy and the influence that a band like depeche mode could get into the rock and roll hall yeah thing. yeah the numbers are there the impulse is there and i think they're just simply how can i put this i think there are less people now who basically look at someone like depeche and go like synthesizers that's not real music and you know if you're out there and you're listening to that and you still think that way <laughs> bless your heart <laughs> that's all i'll say <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. 
Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now it's time in Hit Parade the Bridge where we do some trivia. And joining us on the line from the D.C. area is Amanda. Amanda, are you there? I am. Hi, Chris. You've also got my uh, guest this month, a gentleman named Ned Raggett on the line. Ned, can you hear us as well? Yes, I can. How do you do, Amanda? How are you? I'm great. I'm really happy to talk to you today. Now, I understand that uh, you discovered Hit Parade in a very specific way when you were at work. I was. I, uh, I work in politics, and uh, last year I was working on a congressional campaign in New Jersey and had about an hour-long commute in both directions um, each day, and I discovered Hit Parade basically right at the beginning of that uh, endeavor and sort of binged all of the episodes uh, every morning and every evening, and it, it kept me alert and awake on that hour-long commute after very long days on a, on a campaign. Well, I'm touched to hear that it kept you awake. I've definitely gotten the odd comment from people who said, oh, it's so lulling and soothing. It helps me go to sleep. So the fact that it was keeping you awake, I take as a compliment. Thank you. It was it was mm. nice to indulge in um, some music history rather than uh, all of the politics that I was engaging in all day long. Oh, I can imagine. Um, <laughs> let me also ask, and I think I know the answer to this question, but are you a Slate Plus member? I am a Slate Plus member. About how long have you been a Slate Plus member? I think it's about uh, two years now. Fantastic. Well, of course, this is the moment when I remind folks that while this bridge episode is available to all Hit Parade subscribers, we only open our trivia rounds to Slate Plus members. So if you are a member and would like to be a trivia contestant, visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. That's slate.com slash hit parade sign up. So, Amanda, I'm pretty sure you know how this works, but briefly, I'm going to ask you three trivia questions. The first will be a callback to the most recent episode of Hit Parade, and the next two will be a preview of the next full-length episode of Hit Parade. And then, at the end, you're going to get a chance to turn the tables and ask me a trivia question. Are you ready for some trivia? I am. I'm a little nervous. My Mancunian father will um, disown me if I get this first one wrong. Mm. <laughs> Holy cow. Okay, well, here we go. Let's uh, let's see how this turns out. Question one. Last month, I discussed the slow emergence of UK post-punk bands as US hitmakers. The Cure, in particular, took about a decade to score their first top 40 hit on Billboard's Hot 100. What Cure song barely qualified by peaking at number 40? A. Let's Go to Bed. B. In Between Days. C, Just Like Heaven, or D, Love Song? I believe it is C, Just Like Heaven. And that is correct. The correct answer is C, Just Like Heaven. Show me, show me, show me how you do that trick. The second single from Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me scraped the top 40 the first week of January 1988. 
for the record, Let's Go to Bed bubbled under the Hot 100 at number 109 in 1983. In Between Days spent a single week on the chart at number 99 in early 86. And of course, Love Song was a number two smash in 1989. Fantastic. Uh, One for one. And uh, now we're going to do our preview questions. Are you ready for the next? Yes, I am. All right, here we go. Question two. We are less than two months away from the end of the 2010s. From January of 2010 through October of 2019, which of these recording artists, including their featured performances, has scored the most number one hits on Billboard's Hot 100? A. Bruno Mars, B. Rihanna, C. Katy Perry, or D. Drake? I'm going to go with Rihanna. And that is also correct. The correct answer is Rihanna. She has had nine number one hits this decade, including her featured performances on two Eminem singles. For the record, Katy Perry has generated eight number ones this decade, Bruno Mars has seven, and Drake, six. I'll throw in quickly at this point uh, my uh, my firm belief that Rihanna, tying in the theme of the earlier uh, episode's discussion, is very much a good goth artist of the 2010s in many ways. Uh, you can't call exactly call her music goth, but in terms of inspiration, aesthetic, how she presents herself, there's a definite through line that emphasizes the darker side, and uh, that I think has uh, been to her benefit both musically and both and with her uh, makeup and uh, fashion lines too. That is a great point, Ned. Thank you for tying together the 2010s and the goths. I <laughs> hugely appreciate that. Um, all right. So two for two. Let's try and make it three for three. Here we go. Let's do it. Question three. Famously, Old Town Road by Lil Nas X spent 19 weeks at number one this year, beating a 23-year-old record for most weeks at number one. But what other song this decade almost beat that record and is tied for the second most weeks on top? A. Mark Ronson with Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk. B. The Chainsmokers featuring Halsey, Closer. C. Ed Sheeran, Shape of You. Or D, Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee featuring Justin Bieber, Despacito. Just purely based on the fact that I think it played for truly forever, I'm going to go with Despacito. And you have run the table. That is absolutely correct. Despacito. Despacito. Quiero respirar tu cuello despacito. Deja que te diga cosas al oído. Para que te acuerdes si no estás conmigo. When it spent its 16th week at number one, Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee's bilingual hit with Justin Bieber tied the record set in 1996 by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men's One Sweet Day. That record was broken this year by Lil Nas X. For the record, Uptown Funk spent 14 weeks on top and Closer and Shape of You, 12 apiece. That was spectacular. My gosh, three for three. Well done. Amanda, you must be very proud. I am. I think the fact that I was in college for a good chunk of that period of time of those songs playing is probably helpful, you know, (laughs) played on repeat at 
at college parties. <laughs> yeah, well, so that doesn't hurt. A little firsthand experience, uh, as Ned and I will say about the 1980s, uh, certainly oh, yeah. uh, goes a <laughs> long go. way in a, in a trivia question. Um, I understand that you have a trivia question for me. Is that right? I do, Chris. Okay, lay it Are on Are you me. ready? Ready as I'll ever be. All right. Uh, Drake was the artist who spent more weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 than any other artist in the 2010s. Which of his songs held that spot for the longest? A, God's Plan, B, In My Feelings, C, One Dance, or D, Nice For What? All right. Uh, I can eliminate Nice For What straight away um, because I'm pretty sure that it cycled in and out pretty quickly. Um, If my memory is correct, I think improbably it was none of the 2018 number one hits and it was actually the 2016 number one hit, which was One Dance. So I'm going to go with that. That is incorrect. Ah. The mm. answer <laughs> The answer is A, God's plan at 11 weeks at number 1. I don't want to die for them to miss me. Yes, I see the things that they wish on me. In my feelings and one dance are tied for second at 10 weeks. My goodness, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, well, you uh, <laughs> you ran the table on my trivia questions. I blew a trivia question I absolutely should have gotten. And you have stumped the band. So nice job, Amanda. Well done. Thank you very much. I feel very accomplished now. As well you should. I would like to thank you very much for joining us on Hit Parade the Bridge. Thank you so much, Chris. So, as our last two questions of the trivia round indicated, the next episode of Hit Parade will be about the decade of the 10s, the decade that is about to end as I record this episode in early November 2019. It should be an interesting bird's eye view of a decade that we probably didn't think too much about until it was almost over, and now we may have enough perspective to figure out what the 2010s was about musically and where it fits in with the last 50 to 60 years of pop, rock, and R&B and hip-hop history. My thanks to Ned Raggett for joining me for this episode of The Bridge. Uh, Ned, tell us where folks can find you online, uh, and it's not just at the usual social media sites. You're kind of all over, aren't you? <laughs> oh, I just do a few things here and there. Well, uh, just to say where to find me, probably the easiest thing uh, is Twitter. Uh, it can be found at uh, my name, Ned Raggett. Uh, that's spelled uh, R-A-G-G-E-T-T. Um, I also do have a Patreon that I've recently started. Uh, this is to uh, con- continue some various writing projects, revive some other ones and uh, things like that uh, on a variety of subjects. A lot of them have been, oddly enough, sort of uh, goth UK related lately, but not solely that, trust me. Um, anyway, uh, that can be found at patreon.com slash again, my name. Uh, but the final thing, uh, just to throw out there, if you'd like to know what else I get up to, is my own podcast, which is not a musical podcast, uh, with my friend. Friends Oriana Schwint and Jared Pekacek. We have a podcast on the Megaphonic.fm network called By the Bywater, and it's all about J.R.R. Tolkien, everything to do with Middle Earth and beyond. Uh, we record monthly. We just recorded our latest episode yesterday, and it should be out around the time this episode's out. So if you have an interest in that, please do uh, give a listen. Really appreciate it. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Ned. This episode of Hit Parade the Bridge was produced by Asha Saluja, and I'm Chris Malanfi. Keep on marching on the one. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.